You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com in a conversation that is being recorded on the 30th of August, 2018. And today I'm talking to two people uh, who are both representing the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which is at Lawyers Committee for 9-11inquiry.org, but that's a ridiculous URL. So I believe the shorter version that will get you to the website is LC. FOR911.org. Do I have that correct? Yes, sir. Okay, okay. LCFOR911.org. In any event, of course, the link to that website and all of the things that we talk about today will be in the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com. But let's introduce our guests. We are talking to Mick Harrison Esquire, the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry, uh, who is a public interest attorney, uh, graduated summa cum laude from the University of the District of Columbia School of Law. And he has a national practice focused on cases that involved whistleblower protection, government accountability, corporate fraud, and false claims and dangers to public health or the environment. And we are also joined on the line today uh, via audio by David R. Meiswinkel, Esquire, a criminal defense attorney, retired police officer of 23 years, and a former U.S. Army veteran. First, uh, Mr. Harrison, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, James. Good to be with you. Yes, and David Meiswinkle, thank you also for joining us today. Thank you very much, James. Okay, so let's start this conversation by the obvious question. What is the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry? Well, James, we are a nonprofit uh, incorporated entity in Pennsylvania. Our mission is to promote transparency and accountability regarding 9-11. Uh, we have a board of directors, uh, David Meiswinkle, my colleague here is the acting chair, I am vice chair. Um, we have non-lawyers involved as well, and what we're trying to do is to uh, find out more about what happened leading up to 9-11, exactly what happened on 9-11, and what has transpired because of 9-11, and to make that information known to the public. Uh, to our elected representatives and to law enforcement. Well, I think the uh, listeners of this program will know that there has been a need for 17 years now for proper criminal investigation into the massive criminal attack that took place on September 11, 2001, and that we have not seen so far in the in the justice system. The justice system so far. Um, but the question then is, what has brought you and the other members of the lawyers committee? together on this issue. Uh, how did you come to join this, and, and uh, what is, the, what is the, the sort of founding purpose of this? Well, there's a personal aspect and a professional aspect to the answer. Uh, personally, I tripped into this issue. Um, I've been looking at government uh, misconduct and corporate corruption for about 30 years, uh, most of that as a lawyer. And I happened into a meeting with one of the nonprofits I represent and assist, um, an environmental group, as it happened. And I heard someone say there were bombs placed in the buildings. This was 10 or more years ago. And I said, what are you talking about? I had no idea what they were talking about. And uh, they said, well, David Ray Griffin, uh, as you may know, is a professor, professor of theology who's investigated this has been talking about his findings publicly, and he has concluded that there's evidence of the use of explosives to bring the Trade Center buildings down on 9-11. And that was news, news to me. 
So uh, long story from there, but I began my own inquiry because that's the sort of thing that I do uh, to look at instances of major uh, crimes that have gone unaddressed. And uh, there was a chemist in Bloomington who you may know of, Kevin Ryan, um, who's been a uh, well-known researcher on this. Happened to be he was in Bloomington, Indiana, where I live. I went to talk with him, and uh, he educated me on the science. And at that point, I started doing my own investigation. And it's one of those things that the more you look at it, the more you become concerned. Yes, I've often noted that uh, people's credulity of the story we've been told about September 11th is in exact inverse proportion to their knowledge of that story. So uh, I, I think your your experience will be relatable to a lot of the people out there in the audience. Um, and then the board itself, how did the board come together? What was the uh, what was the what was the time frame for that? Well, we've been incorporated as the lawyers committee for about two years. We did that December 2016, I believe. It might have been 2015. Um, I came on not as a founder. Uh, the organization was already meeting as a group of lawyers and investigators, uh, not incorporated when I came on. And our mission wasn't fully formed at the time I came on. And we started discussing amongst ourselves our common goals and our common concerns and decided we did need an incorporated not-for-profit to pursue our mission. And so we decided to incorporate in Pennsylvania about two years ago, uh, there are a number of folks on the board. Um, Ed Asner, the actor, is on our board. Uh, we have uh, Barbara Honiger, an investigator into 9-11, on our board. We have other lawyers on our board. So we're a mixture of folks who have come to the issue from different paths, but we have a common commitment to the mission. Well, what we are going to be talking about specifically today is uh, the fact that the 9-11 committee, the, the lawyers committee here, is not simply a talking shop. It is actually pursuing legal options with regards to September 11th. And specifically, we're talking about a a petition that has been filed. Uh, specifically, reading from the website, uh, it says the nonprofit public interest organization, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, Inc., is filing a petition with the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York formally requesting, pursuant to federal statute, that he present to a special grand jury extensive evidence of thus far unprosecuted federal crimes relating to the destruction of three World Trade Center towers on 9-11. Tell us about this petition, the grand jury, what it is you're seeking to accomplish here. Well, we are, as you say, an organization focused on action, not on just talking. We did file this petition you described with the U.S. Attorney in New York, um, we did that on April 10th of this year. We filed an amended petition July 30th of this year that very few people know about, which added three additional federal crimes to the petition. Uh, the, the law behind the petition, which few people understand, and I, when I say few people, I also mean few lawyers understand, is that um, the, when a citizen reports a federal crime to the U.S. attorney, which every citizen has the right to do, the U.S. Attorney has a duty, meaning a mandatory obligation, to pass that evidence on of the crime reported to the grand jury, in this case, meaning a special federal grand jury. Now, most folks think about the U.S. Attorney being a prosecutor, like other prosecutors, that their job is discretionary. They can decide who to prosecute, which laws to enforce, when to enforce them, and so forth. And that is generally true, for better or worse, but not true in this particular instance, 
because this particular federal law says that once the evidence of the crime is passed on to the U.S. attorney, it must be given to the special grand jury. So it's that law that we're using, um, and that's uh, the short version of why we expect success on this particular objective, the objective being to get this evidence in the hands of you know, 12 to 23 normal people and let them see if they think the crime is being committed. That does sound impressive, but I say that as a layman, and not only as any layman, but a Canadian in Japan. So I do not know the ins and outs of grand juries and how they work in the United States. I know a lot of my listeners are in the same boat, even, of course, a lot of Americans don't know really how this works. Can you break it down to uh, for us? What kind of body is a grand jury? How is it convened? What, how is it appointed? Who appoints it? And uh, how many members does it have? What kind of investigative powers does it have? And what does it ultimately do? What is its final action in the end? That's uh, some real good questions. And again, the grand jury is not well understood by most folks. Uh, one reason for that is grand jury proceedings are done in secret by law. Um, the, uh, the grand jurors are not allowed to talk about the testimony they receive or their deliberations. Now, a witness who comes to a grand jury is allowed to talk about what they testified about if they choose, but the grand jurors cannot. So there are 12 to 23 normal people, normal meaning they're picked from the roles of um, voters, registered voters. Um, They are picked in a way that petite or regular juries are picked. A court will go through a selection process. Uh, The federal prosecutor is involved. The U.S. attorney is involved in that process. but. Once they're selected, uh, they act as a normal jury would act on the issues of federal crimes that may have been committed, I emphasize may have been committed, in their jurisdiction uh, within the statute limitations for the time leading up to and including the time that they sit. Now, they sit for a maximum of 18 months, a year and a half, and then a new jury is appointed. The special grand jury, which we're talking about, has some powers that at least some lawyers think go beyond regular grand jury's powers. And and one of those powers, which is of interest to us, is that a special grand jury, when investigating a potential federal crime, may look at evidence of government misconduct, malfeasance, misfeasance, nonfeasance, even if they ultimately determine no federal crime was committed and no indictment is forthcoming, they can still issue a report on the government malfeasance, misfeasance, or nonfeasance to the court, and the court can publish it. So uh, we would like uh, the special grand jury, in addition to looking at the crimes that we're alleging, to also look at this broader issue. Just to clarify, the, the secrecy that surrounds the grand jury's actual proceedings is, that is complete and uh, total, it, it, it continues after the grand jury has finished its work? No, um, not in every respect. If the grand jury returns a proposed indictment and the U.S. attorney signs it, and there becomes a prosecution as a result, that is a public process. The indictment will be public, the findings of the grand jury in that indictment will be public, uh, the particular deliberations that brought the grand jury to do that will not be public. Now, there is an exception, and in most cases in law, there are exceptions. And the federal rules of criminal procedure allow 
a judge to order a lifting of the secrecy on the grand jury proceedings themselves if there is a need that cannot be met any other way. And I won't get into the ins and outs of that. It isn't done very often, but it, it is done sometimes. Very interesting. Well, so the uh, petition, as amended in, as you say, in June, um, does present evidence of specific crimes that are alleged to have been committed. What crimes is are actually being proposed as having been committed here? Well, the obvious one is uh, bombing of a building, a uh, place of public use, um, in this case for terroristic purposes, so it falls under the terrorism statutes. Um, the second crime is the killing of a federal official. Uh, some folks don't know that there were at least two federal officials killed in New York City during the collapse of the buildings. Uh, one Secret Service agent, I believe, and one FBI agent. Um, so that law applies. Um, aiding, I won't say this exactly as a quote, but providing material support to a terrorist or a terrorist organization is another aspect of this that is uh, alleged in our petition as a federal crime. The fourth crime may be the destruction of a federal facility, but I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. There were, you may or may not realize, there were federal offices in, in some of these trade center buildings. Uh, CIA, uh, FBI, Secret Service, and so forth. So those, that's the gist of what we're talking about. And, and that's important because this is under federal statute that this uh, grand jury is convened, and therefore federal crimes are at, at, uh, at, at issue here. That's precisely correct, and only federal crimes. We are not looking at state crimes for this action. There are state crimes involved. Uh, we're not looking at them for this particular crime. Right, exactly. Okay, so... Um, I will at this point, of course, refer people to the petition itself, which is available for download through your website, and I will include the link in the show notes at CorbettReport.com so people can take a look at it for themselves, and I suggest they do so. But uh, in summary, let's talk about the uh, actual evidence that is presented in the exhibits that accompany this petition. Sure. Tell us what the nature of the, the, these exhibits and what they tell us about the crime of 9-11. Well, let me give you some examples. There are about 20 categories of evidence that are listed in the petition. Some of these categories are scientific evidence, such as the findings of the, uh, what we call the red flakes, the thermite, nanothermite flakes in the dust of the World Trade Center. And we attach a, a report from chemists. We analyzed uh, those uh, dust residues, found the flakes. Uh, some of them were still active, meaning they could be ignited. Uh, they were determined to have the components of a high-tech uh, nanothermite or nanothermate material, which is a high-tech incendiary, which can be um, configured as an explosive as well. Now, so we have that finding, which is surprising to find you know, high-tech explosive residue in the dust. Uh, we have eyewitness testimonies. Now, one category of that is more than 100 firefighters and first responders. And a lot of people don't know, but you can find this out by going to the New York Times, which has published these interviews with the firefighters. And these interviews were done by the Fire Department of New York, their official interviews. The interviews show uh, that a number of these firefighters witnessed, saw, and heard the sights and sounds of explosions. And we've quoted their testimonies in the petition, very explicit, um, what you would expect someone to say they heard and saw if there were actually explosives going off at the time. And some of them even say this looked like, you know, uh, 
commercial controlled demolition I've seen on television. Some of the firefighters actually said that. So you've got explosives found in the residue. You've got professional eyewitnesses saying they heard and saw explosions. Um, you've got video showing the collapse of the buildings. And if you watch those videos carefully, and a lot of folks probably choose not to for understandable reasons, but if you do, and it's a tough thing to watch, you know, every time you see it, it's a tough thing to watch. But you can see that the concrete is being pulverized before it hits the ground. And you can see a relatively, not completely, but relatively symmetric collapse. A building 7 is the extreme example of that. Um, a lot of folks don't know Building 7 collapsed, but it was not hit by a plane, but it did collapse as well later in the day. So you've got this symmetric collapse. You've got a rapid collapse that is near free fall for the towers, and for Building 7 is actual free fall for part of the collapse. Free fall meaning acceleration at the rate of gravity. Now, the only way that happens is if there's no resistance in the floors below the collapsing floors above. Otherwise, the collapsing floors above would hit the intact floors below in counter resistance and be slowed, if not stopped. And um, so that is uh, a piece of evidence that's hard to explain. In fact, it's physically, scientifically impossible to explain absent the use of explosives. So you've got uh, these categories. There were also uh, lay witnesses who worked in the buildings uh, who survived, who testify about seeing and hearing sights and sounds of explosions, some of them injured by those explosions. Um, you've got seismic evidence. Uh, we have a professional seismologist who issued a study on this, Dr. Rousseau, and his conclusions were that there were seismic signals uh, caused by explosions at the Trade Center that occurred before the airplane struck the buildings. So that's a significant piece of evidence standing on its own. Um, there's evidence about the corrosion of the metal uh, showing uh, like sulfur attacks on the steel that wouldn't happen in a normal fire. You've got extreme temperatures, extreme meaning well above fire temperature from jet fuel or building contents. So I now could go down the list, but when you put these pieces of evidence together, uh, as we conclude in the petition, as disturbing as it is, um, there is no other explanation for this body of evidence. Uh, you might be able to somehow say, oh, someone made a mistake on this piece or that, that piece or, you know, 100 firefighters are wrong or the chemist got it wrong in the laboratory uh, or somehow the video was tampered with to show a faster collapse than actually happened. I mean, you have to create some pretty extensive explanations for a number of pieces of evidence to try to get past this conclusion. And uh, that, you know, if you actually try to do that, it would show, I think, a considerable bias by the person trying to do that. If you just look at the evidence objectively, this evidence is well beyond the evidence used to indict folks for crimes or to even convict them for crimes. So we have reached that conclusion on the issue, and I fo focus on this, on the issue of the demolition of the Trade Center building. We have not gone into other issues in this petition. It is focused on the destruction of the buildings only. We are investigating other aspects of 9-11. But this petition is on just this one. Okay, so you talk, of, for, for example, about the eyewitness testimony and the different categories of that. And uh, and the firefighters' uh, witness, eyewitness testimony, as you say, is a, is a vast repository of very valuable information, first-hand data about what was going on in the buildings that day. And uh, 
Dr. Gray McQueen, I know, has written a, uh, a paper about that for the Journal of 9-11 Studies that I would refer my listeners to if they're not familiar with that. Uh, again, quite persuasive first-hand testimony, but I want to focus on one particular first-hand testimony, the testimony of William Rodriguez that you include. Can you tell people who don't know about the story of William Rodriguez and what he had to report about what happened that day? Well, I can't tell it <clears throat> with the level of um, articulateness that really would tell it. But I can, uh, I can tell it, <clears throat> pardon my voice, I have allergies this time of year. So Willie was um, a custodian in the building. He had keys to the various floors and the doors. He, <clears throat> he was there on 9-11 in the lower floors, the sub-level. And I don't know, you know how to name them precisely, but one of the basement levels. He experienced an explosion <clears throat> below him on 9-11, which was not coming from where the planes hit and happened in his testimony before the plane hit the building he was in. Uh, that is hard to explain uh, unless you look at the other categories of evidence in our petition, and then it's not hard to explain. Uh, it is one of those pieces that corroborates the other pieces, and those pieces all say, as Willie has concluded himself, uh, there must have been bombs, explosives in the building. Uh, they went off, and uh, they hurt a lot of people. They damaged the building, and eventually they caused <clears throat> the buildings to come down. Now, he has a very heroic story of how he helped uh, the firefighters uh, get up into some of the higher floors and rescue people. That's not something he had to do. He could have simply escaped with his colleagues. And so I think uh, we all admire him for doing that. Yes, and it's a particularly interesting and, and persuasive testimony because uh, William Rodriguez is and has been hailed as one of the heroes of 9-11, helping to get many of the people out of the building that day and has been decorated for that and awarded for, for his work that day. And his testimony has been consistent since the time of 9-11 itself. He has continued to, to say that same story, but oddly, that part of the story has not gotten anything like the press coverage of just the, the man who helped save a lot of people from the World Trade Center. So it is important to get that right. testimony out and uh, in a court environment where if something can be done about it. I guess, uh, again, I will refer people back to the petition itself so they can actually look at these exhibits and, uh, and the evidence that's presented there. But uh, as you say, it is a persuasive, overwhelming body of evidence that together points to uh, obviously something very different than what we have been told in the NIST's uh, report uh, on the Twin Towers and on World Trade Center Building 7. Um, the question then is, if the grand jury is similarly convinced that there is certainly something here, um, what is their, what would their next step be? If <laughs> I know this is quite theoretical. If the grand jury is convened and if they are persu persuaded by the evidence, then they refer it to the court for prosecution? Well, um, by, yes, by way of the U.S. attorney. So if the grand jury is convinced, they ask the U.S. attorney to help them draft a proposed indictment. If the U.S. attorney refuses to do that, and I would hope that that wouldn't happen, the grand jury can do their best to draft it themselves. Uh, one way or the other, it can be submitted to the court. Uh, typically, it is not prosecuted unless the U.S. attorney signs it. There is probably some dispute in the legal community <clears throat> about what happens if a grand jury wants an indictment returned and the U.S. attorney refuses to sign it. Um, and there are constitutional issues involved 
historical issues about why we have grand juries and some folks don't know the grand jury is independent of all branches of government. It's not part of the judiciary. It's not part of the executive branch. It's not part of the legislative branch. It's its own constitutional entity free of all those other branches of government. And if and the grand jury, you asked me before, you know, what powers do they have to investigate? They can subpoena witnesses. They can subpoena documents. They can offer witnesses immunity. They can work with a U.S. attorney to make a plea deal to try to get one witness to cooperate against another. Those are all powers that we don't have as you know civilian litigators. Uh, we might be able to get some subpoena power in a given civil case, but generally they've got a lot more power to unravel this than we do, which is why we want them to look at it. So if they do, sorry, <clears throat> if they do and they return the indictment and the U.S. attorney signs it, which would be the normal course, um, the U.S. attorney would then bring a criminal action in uh, federal court. A, a, one or more defendants would be identified and arrested and then uh, subjected to a criminal trial where they would be allowed to defend themselves, uh, presumed innocent as any criminal defendant. And if the prosecutor met his or her burden to show uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then there would be a conviction on a 9-11 crime. And if in the course of the grand jury's investigation they find evidence of another or different uh, federal, federal crime than the one that has been put before them, are they able to continue pursuing that crime, or would they be simply limited to referring that back to the district attorney? The grand jury is free to pursue any crime that comes to its attention anyway, including by its own devices. Um, so the answer is yes. They could pursue any crime that comes to their attention even if they believe they've discovered it themselves. Very interesting, and potentially a very powerful tool uh, for getting at the truth of this event. So extremely interesting. But, of course, the other question is, as we talked about at the beginning, you have filed this petition under a federal statute, which mandates the district attorney to put this evidence before a grand jury. The question is, what happens, A, has that occurred yet? And B, if it has not, what will be the next step for you to seek redress? Well, that's an important question. Um, the U.S. Attorney has not yet disclosed to us what they're doing in terms of acting on our petition. Uh, we're hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst. So the best would be that they've already given this information to a grand jury and that they're proceeding in secret on it. Uh, we would hope they would give us the courtesy of telling us that that process has been initiated that our petition has been given to the grand jury. Uh, we have not been told that. Uh, we are waiting what we consider to be a reasonable time before we take the next step. As I said, assuming the best, but preparing for the worst. The worst would be that either the U.S. attorney calls and says, we're not going to do anything on this, we're not going to give your evidence to the grand jury, or they simply uh, don't talk to us at all. In, in that case, we're going to assume that they're not presenting it to the grand jury because we have nothing else to assume. So in that case, uh, we are prepared to file a federal lawsuit in a federal court to have a court order U.S. attorney to do its duty on this particular matter and hand our petition evidence to a special federal grand jury. Uh, we believe that under the mandamus statute, which is a federal law, a lot of folks don't know about this, but there is a federal law, believe it or not, that says any citizen at least any citizen withstanding, and you know, 
there are some ins and outs on standing, maybe more than there should be, but any citizen with standing can bring an action against a federal official or agency to force that federal official to do their job if and only if that job, that task, is mandatory, not discretionary. So that's why they call it mandamus. Uh, mandatory duties can be enforced, and we have every intention of doing that if worse comes to worse. Now, you do say that you're allowing a reasonable time, so I assume that the federal statute under which you're filing this petition does not actually give a time limit for the district attorney to to uh, act on this or any sort of uh, mandated mechanism by which the information that this grand jury has been convened will be communicated to the public? I'm sorry to say that you're entirely correct. Um, there is no deadline in the statute uh, other than a reasonable time, which is implied. At least we believe the federal court would imply that. Um, so, and it doesn't really say, the statute doesn't really say that the U.S. attorney has to call up the petitioner and give them a status report. Uh, what it does say is that the U.S. attorney must hand the evidence over to the special grand jury and inform the grand jury itself of who presented the evidence to the U.S. attorney. So the U.S. attorney should not only give our evidence to the grand jury, but to say the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry gave this to us, here's their contact information, and the grand jury itself could contact us. Well, I know that I have a large listener base that is highly motivated on this issue and would like to support people who are doing things like this. In what way can they support the Lawyers Committee in this uh, petition? Well, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we need the same things that any public interest nonprofit needs. We need volunteers, we need donations, uh, we need information. So uh, if any of your listeners have any of those things to spare, uh, money, time, or if they have information on this issue, uh, we would ask that they go to our webpage, uh, www.lcfor911.org. Uh, you can sign up there to support our petition to the U.S. Attorney. You can make a donation directly to us in a number of ways. You can agree to serve on one of our investigative committees as a volunteer. Uh, you can agree to help us raise money as a volunteer. Um, you can do almost anything that an organization could use help on. Uh, you know, you can do web research, you can uh, do freedom of information requests, work with our FOIA committee. We have a number of freedom of information requests out there on some very interesting topics. So we can use all of that help. All right. Well, then we will uh, once again direct people to the website where, again, not only can they find out more about the Lawyers Committee itself, but they can find out in much greater detail and read the petition for themselves uh, as amended in June, as you say, as some people might not know. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I think we'll leave it at that. As I say, the links to all of these documents and uh, and resources will be in the show notes for this conversation at CorbettReport.com. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing updates about this as it goes. So I hope you will keep us informed about this case as it proceeds. Uh, and on that note, any other actions that you take, I think we'd all be interested in hearing about. So please do keep us informed about any future actions by the committee. Uh, so on that note, uh, Mick Harrison, uh, David Meiswinkel as well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.